Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, we're still in Mark's Gospel, and we've come to the last week in Jesus' life before his crucifixion. We're at an event that we oftentimes refer to as, as Palm Sunday. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all talk about it. But what we're going to discover is that Mark's account of it is, to say the least, underwhelming, particularly compared to the others. Now, what most of us probably imagine or what we might have uh, been told in, in previous messages or something is that there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people crying out Hosanna and waving branches and putting palm branches out in front of him. And then just a few days later, the same people, the same thousands, I've heard preachers teach this, the same thousands, exact same people are going to turn out and cry out, crucify him. And so we've got this, this sense we've probably heard before that like the, the whole city is welcoming him and the whole city is turning on him. But in reality, it's, it's somewhat different. Today's text doesn't take place actually in Jerusalem. It takes place on the way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city that, that sat on a hill, and there's a, city, a series of hills around it. One of them is known as the Mount of Olives, you know, here to the, to the east of Jerusalem there. You've got the Mount of Olives, you've got Garden of Gethsemane, Bethphage, and then uh, Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And so what happened on this particular day, Jesus is beginning his journey, you know, about a half mile on the other side of the Mount of Olives, and then he comes over the Mount of Olives through the gate into Jerusalem. And going up over that takes, like I said, about a half an hour. And as he goes, he tells the disciples, he, he says, hey, I want you to go into a village, that village up ahead, probably Bethphage, and I, and I want you to, to look, you're going to find a donkey. Uh, the colt of a donkey that no one has ever ridden, and I want you to go and I want you to take it. I want you to, to get it for me. And if they ask, just tell them, say, the master needs it, and we'll return it to you when we're, when we're done. And so they go, and they bring the colt to Jesus, and he, and he sits down on it, and then he rides down that pathway down to the golden gate on the east side there. You can see where the temple is. And, and, and he comes into Jerusalem. And as he's doing that, a large crowd does gather, but, but probably at the most, maybe a few thousand people at the very most, 5,000 people would barely even fit in this area here. And Jerusalem at that time had a population of about 25,000 folks on a normal day throughout the year. It would swell, it would swell up to about 250,000, some scholars say. Some scholars think as many as 2 million during the Passover. But you're not going to get 250,000 people in that pass there that comes across the Kidron Valley between the Garden of Gethsemane and the gate there. Now, when we say the Temple Mount or the Mount of Olives, we need to understand that, that geography, it's not like we call what we call mountains here in Southern California. You know, Mount San Jacinto across the, the 10 here and Mount San Gorgonio to our west, they're both about 11,000 to 11,500 feet high. And many of you I know have probably been up there. 
The Temple Mount here in Jerusalem is only about 2,500 feet in elevation. The Mount of Olives is only 2,700 feet. It's 200 feet higher. So they're, they're about the same height, I checked this out this week, as those hills right across Dillon Road here from us, okay? So when we say mountains or mounts over there, think more in, in line with what's across, the, across Dillon Road from us. So hopefully this helps you kind of get the picture of the scene to get some perspective. And I know we've got some people here that, that hike a lot, the Topolinskis hike a lot in the valley, and, and some of you others I know as well. So we need, to, we need to keep in mind, as we, as we continue through Mark's gospel, we need to keep in mind what Mark's purpose was. Remember that Mark was written primarily to a Roman audience, and he's trying to convince them that Jesus was not just the Messiah of the Jews, but that he was God, the God of the universe. He was God incarnate. He was the Son of God. And that's why the opening sentence of the book says this. It says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Of God. That's how he opens it up with, if you go back and look again. And then he quickly moves from story to story to story, and I like to call them stories that divide, because they, they, they force you to make a decision. Is this guy crazy? Is he demonic? And he was accused of all that. Or is he who he is claiming, who he is claiming to be? Is he God, or is he fraud? And as we saw when we got to Mark chapter 8 uh, months ago, there's kind of a pivot point there where, where everybody's dividing on this. And, and Jesus says to Peter and the 12, he says, who do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the father in heaven has revealed it to you. But Jesus said, you know, you don't quite have it right because my messiahship isn't what you're thinking. It's not the way that you think it's going to go because I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And three different times, we looked at this last week, three different times he had, over these chapters since chapter 8, he has told them, I'm heading to Jerusalem to lay down my life, to be killed at the hands of the, of the authorities there, but I will take it up and rise again on the third day. And so again, we have these series of stories that divide, and, and even after, we're going to see after today, after the entry into Jerusalem, over the next few weeks as we continue in Mark's gospel, there's going to be more division as Jesus continues to teach in the temple and such and divide people because he's forcing them to decide who they see he is. As he dies at the end, spoiler alert, a Roman centurion, a Roman centurion there at the cross is going to say, surely... This man was the Son of God. So Mark starts it, he pivots it, and he ends it, and then he proves it with the story of the resurrection at the very end. And that's why he doesn't have such a fancy account here in, like, like the others do. Matthew is written for a, a Jewish audience. So over and over and over again, Matthew is quoting the Old Testament scriptures, and he's pointing out that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Luke, he's, he's a little bit more serious there. He was trained as a doctor. He's a, a man of science, if you will, a man of looking at things in an orderly fashion. And he says, hey, I've researched all this stuff, and I've set out to give you an orderly, a chronological account of, of what happened with regard to Jesus, the Messiah. 
And this is the only, Luke is the only gospel that, that is in chronological order. The others did not try to put them necessarily in chronological orders. They're, they're, they're more of in a thematic order as they're trying to prove their points about Jesus. John is simply trying to prove, yes, he is God in the flesh. He is the Word made flesh. And many of the stories that John has are stories that you will not necessarily find in, in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And they fill in more of the dialogues and, and things that Jesus taught about who he was. So with that bit of background, let's dive into our story today. And we are going to see here in Mark that Jesus is going to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 about the Messiah coming in on a colt that has never been ridden. And we're going to see that the initial response of the, of the crowds here, their, their adulation, and we're going to see, we're going to look at their expectations, and we'll, and we'll, we'll look at what the Jesus, I'm saying what the Jesus that they wanted, because we're going to find out that the Jesus they wanted isn't necessarily the Jesus that they got. So Mark chapter 11, beginning verse 1. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell them, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. And we call it Palm Sunday because one of the accounts in the other Gospels tells us that many of these were, were palm branches that had been cut and put out there. And then verse 9 says, Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I want to stop right there for a minute and kind of paint a picture of you that, that we could miss if we just, just read through this without, without looking at it and, and understanding it. This greeting, this blessing that, that's there, this comes from Psalm 118, and it's called a Psalm of Ascent. And when, when the Jews would go to, the, to Jerusalem for the Passover, they would sing out these psalms or, or these songs, these poems of ascent while they were climbing up the road, going heading up to the temple. So all this stuff that's going on right now isn't necessarily really out of the ordinary because there's, it's, it's a festive occasion. It's there. And what they're saying is very, very normal. These folks had probably done it year after year after year as they, as they went up. And Hosanna, the, the word Hosanna originally meant save or, or save now. And over time, it just became a phrase, a greeting, an exclamation of God's goodness and, and God's promises to save as that we would remember all these prophecies that were in the Old Testament that said God's going to save them sometime. Now, to the readers in the first century, they would have known that. And they're just going to say, oh, they're just doing what you normally do, and, and even, including even putting the coats out and the, and the palm branches. These had happened back in, the, in what we call the intertestamental period, back uh, between the testaments during the era of the Maccabees when they ruled in Jerusalem. Things like parades and things like this happen. But then in verse 10, we have a change. We have an addition. We have something more here. Verse 10 says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. 
They say, blessed is what? The coming what? The kingdom. The ki now, that's not, in the, that's not in Psalm 118. That's not in the Ascent Psalms. You see, they had a dream. The Jews had a dream that one day the glory that they knew when David was king would return. Jerusalem would once again be a powerful city. Israel would once again be feared amongst the nations. And they would break out from the, from the oppression of the Romans. And the Romans weren't the first ones that they were in subjugation to. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. It had been, it'd been hundreds of years that they'd been occupied by somebody else. And they had a dream that they would come out from under this oppression and Israel would once again be what Israel was during the glory days of David. And so they're, they're adding this there and they're implying and they're, they're treating Jesus like a conquering king. Coming in after a victory, after a big war, this is what the Romans would do. I've been to Rome many, many times, and, and there's, there's a procession. They would come up the road there as the Roman generals, after they conquered someplace, they'd come into Rome in all, the, in all their glory. And this is kind of the way that they're, that they're looking at Jesus coming in there. And so we don't want to miss this in the beginning of this story. They're not just praising Jesus. They're praising him as an earthly conqueror that they were waiting for. And what does this mean for the Romans? Well, think about it for a moment. Can you see the problem there? You think the Romans like this kind of talk, kind of insurrectionist talk? And there's no question that that's what's on the minds of the people. And why explain this in a little bit more detail than we might have gotten if we just read through it? Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around checked everything out. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now next week, we're going to see what he does that next day as he comes in and, and rearranges the furniture, if you will, there in the temple. He makes quite a mess, to say the least. But in today's text, Mark tells us that he just goes in, he looks around, probably started planning what he was doing the next day, and he says, guys, it's kind of late. Let's go back. Let's head back over to Bethany. And so that's what they did. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time today looking at the fact that they desperately, desperately wanted a king, but not the kind of king that Jesus was. The king that they, that they got, the Jesus that they got, wasn't the Jesus that they wanted. And as I stop to think about life, uh, would you agree with me that that's actually a more common thing than we want to admit? The Jesus that we get the God we get isn't always the God that, that we want. The answer we get is not always the, the answer that we want. And so I want us to step back and I, I want us to just take a little bit of time and take a look at the Jesus that they got, compare that with the Jesus that they wanted, and then we're going to ask ourselves this very important question. How should we respond when the Jesus that we get is not the Jesus that we want? So let's talk about the Jesus they got. Take your life notes, that little half sheet of paper out if you haven't already done so, so you can jot a few things down here. First of all, they wanted a Jesus that would fix their earthly problems, but yet they got a Jesus who fixed our eternal problems. They wanted a Jesus that would get rid of the onerous taxes. They wanted a Jesus that would get rid of the military occupation by Rome. They wanted a Jesus who would fix what was pretty much a day-to-day -day mess living under the Romans and where everything was done to take care, of, take care of Rome and to prosper the Romans. And Jesus, God in the flesh, came and said, you know what? You got a bigger problem than that. You've got a bigger problem than your 
and fill in the blank with whatever you want it to fill in with. He says, you've got a sin problem. You're estranged from God. You think you're close to God, but you're estranged from God. You're, you're not worshiping God the way you're supposed to. Your heart isn't where it should be. And I have come to fix that. And on your life notes, I've, I've listed 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, where we are told that, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that he came to pay for them, that they are gone, and that we have redemption from that eternal problem. Which leads us to the second thing about the Jesus they got. They wanted a Jesus who would destroy the Romans. Instead, they got a Jesus who destroyed the stranglehold of sin. And as we've seen, they wanted someone to, to, to you know, get those oppressors, get them kicked out of here. But they got a Jesus that said, no, I'm going to deliver you from your real problem. They got a Jesus that said, I'm going to deliver you from the stranglehold of sin. You see, my biggest problem in life is, is what I'm going to do when I stand before a holy God, a righteous God, and I have to explain why I was part of cosmic treason against him. That's your problem, too. Not the sins of accident, not the sins of, oh, someone pushed me to doing it, but the wide open times when I was a rebel against the King Most High. That's my big problem. But in the meantime, it's not only a problem that I have that, that I willfully rebelled against the King Most High. I've willfully along the way hurt people. I've willfully come along the way and, and done things that call for judgment. I found myself a slave to sin, and the Apostle Paul struggled this, with this as well. He talks all about it in the book of Romans. You've been there? You, you feel what I'm, what I'm saying here? You can be honest. The Apostle Paul talks about this. He says that none of us, not, there's not a single person here in this room that, that's listening to my voice now or that will be listening to it on the podcast later. There's not a single person who is immune from the stranglehold of sin. Not one. And how many times have we, we made up our mind and we said, okay, uh, uh, okay, never again, only to repeat it. Okay, never again, again, and then repeat it again. We've all been there. And the, the Bible describes all this in Romans chapter 6. It says, for we know that our old self, our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That's what Jesus offers us. When we step over, over that line, he forgives us our sins. He adopts us into his family. He sends his Holy Spirit to dwell within us and change us from the inside out. But it's a process, and we're works in, in progress. You know, none of us have arrived yet. None of us have arrived yet. None of us, not, you know, have you ever, anybody here ever gone an entire day and never sinned? Okay, I'm glad no one said they did because they'd be lying. Okay. It's the Spirit's power from the inside out that gives us victory over sin. And, and we, can, we can never have this victory through our, our mere self-discipline. It's a spiritual thing. It's a supernatural thing. And he did this by dying on the cross, as Paul continues in chapter 6, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We still sin, but we don't have to be slaves to sin. There's one other thing that, that they wanted that most of us want when it comes to Jesus. They wanted a Jesus that would judge them. They wanted a Jesus that would judge the bad guys, but they got a Jesus who dealt with their and our sins first. Have you ever wished that Jesus would hurry up and come back and just put an end to all the evil in the world? You ever been there? You know, pretty much at least once a week or maybe even sometimes daily, I'll read about or I'll hear about some horrific thing that happens in the news or, or whatever and say, God, where are you? 
Where are you in all this? Why don't you just, just put an end to this? Why, why do you allow this to happen? Why, is, why do bad things still happen? And this is the thing that even keeps a lot of people that aren't Christians away from God. It's called the problem of evil. There's folks that say, well, I cannot believe in a God that would allow evil to exist in the world. I know I've, I've got someone here in the park uh, that, that's, that lives near me, and then she's told me that's why she can't believe in a God because of the evil that's in the world. And so we have this plea, this wish that God would come and fix it. Well, here's the problem, and there's really two problems here. The first problem is this. When Jesus does return to right all the wrongs and justice comes, all the people who have not turned to God at that point are doomed to be apart from him forever. And we're told in one of Peter's letters, we studied 1 Peter a couple years ago, we're told in 1 Peter that, that one of the reasons the Lord has not returned is his patience. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of patience, okay? I certainly don't have the patience of God. But the Lord has not returned be because of his patience. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And every day that he waits, even though evil triumphs, is also a day that rebels stop becoming rebels and they become sons and daughters of God. And to this very day, I have people that, that I know them, but I, I know that they do not yet know God. They do not yet know Jesus, but I want them to come to Jesus. And I hope you have people like that, too. Pray for those people that, that get on your nerves that you can't stand what they do. The people that you say, those people, pray for them that they would come to Jesus as well. And the Bible says that it's his, his love that causes the delay. But there's another thing that I forget. And that is when he comes to judge, he doesn't start with them. He doesn't start with them. He starts with the family. And, and I don't like this, but it's in Scripture. I don't have to like it. Just because I don't like something doesn't mean that it's not true. Amen? Same thing for you. Just because you don't like something God writes in his word doesn't mean that it's not true. So the next time you're reading an article or you're hearing about something or you see someone do something or getting all amped up about one political party or the other, I don't care whether it's red or blue or donkey or elephant, I don't care. And you're going, God, why don't you sick him? Realize that when he shows up, he's going to bark and bite at us first. The discipline of the Lord, the Bible says, it says don't run away from the discipline of the Lord. Don't disparage it because he disciplines those that he loves. In 1 Peter 4, it says this, For it is time for judgment to begin where? With God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Our job is to obey God. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus didn't just give him one, he gave him two. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't just love God, love your neighbor. We need to understand that when we're calling out to God, sick him, God is saying, are you sure? Because I'm going to sick you the way that you want me to sick them. That's why Jesus back, remember he said, with the measure that you judge, you're going to be judged. When I come, I'm going to start with you. So they thought that a king would come and just drive out these Roman oppressors, kick Roman butt, and, and we're going to see that, that next weekend. Instead, a king, a king came, and he started judgment in the household, literally in the temple there. He drove out the spiritual rebellion of the religious leaders in the temple, and that's where it began. And it tends to always happen when the Jesus that, that, we, that we get isn't the Jesus that we want, 
that things turn a little bit ugly, and they, they turn very ugly in Jerusalem, as we're going to see. We're going to come to it later, but, but I, want to, I want to look ahead now in Mark's gospel to where they cried out, crucify him. Another crowd, not the same crowd necessarily that was there during the triumphal entry, but another crowd. And I want you to see this in the context of what they wanted versus what they got and how they responded to that. A couple of things for us to see here. Mark chapter 15, verses uh, 6 through 15. It says, now it was the custom at this, the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. So evidently there's, this was a, a famous uprising that the people that, that Mark was writing for would have understood this, this big insurrection that occurred. It says the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. There was something that Pilate did every year. And I want you to understand who Barabbas was. It, what does the Bible say he was? He was a murderer. He was a murderer. In the Jews' eyes, some of the Jews, though, they saw him as a freedom fighter. They saw him as a, as a guerrilla warfare type of guy. He was a hero for them because he had attacked and had murdered some Romans. Barabbas was what they hoped Jesus would do. And it's easy to miss this if we don't look at this. The crowd asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did, which was release one of them. So Pilate asks them in verse 9, he says, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. You see, Pilate, Pilate knew, he wasn't a dummy, he knew that, he knew that it was self-interest on the part of the priests and the religious leaders that, that Jesus had been handed over to him. And Pilate tried to, he tried to release Jesus, he, he was trying to, to, to have justice come down, but, but nope, that's not what they wanted. It says, but the chief priests, in verse 11, the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. These are the chief priests. Now, is murder against the law? Yes. Are the chief priests supposed to uphold the law? It was against, murder was against the Roman law. It was also against the law of God. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to release Barabbas instead. And now they got a choice. And, and men and women, don't we love our choices? You know, we'll, we'll fight about our choices, our rights, our choices. Now they had a choice, and they're going to exercise that choice. Barabbas, who's going to do what they want, or Jesus, who's not the Jesus, not the person that they want. Pilate continues in verse 12. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him. Crucify him. I think we need to, when we read, read that, Understand the stress. Crucify him. They're emphatic. Not just crucify him. Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, would you agree with me? This turned out pretty ugly when the Jesus that they got wasn't the Jesus that they wanted. With the rest of our time here, I want us to explore this. What do we do? What do we do to not end up like them? What do we do when the Jesus that we wanted is not the Jesus that we get? 
The first thing is expect it. Expect it. It's guaranteed to happen. Isaiah 55, 9 says, my ways are not your ways. He says, if the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We do not know what he knows. We do not see what he sees. We do not understand what he understands. And whenever I put God through this grid, through this gauntlet of the way that I think things ought to be, it's kind of like a little child looking up at his daddy and saying, well, you've got to prove that to me. Have you ever tried to prove something to a four-year-old? It's kind of hard when they're in rebellion and they don't want to do what you want them to do. It's impossible, in fact. And that's why we're told why, why I love Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean unto your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I'll admit to you, my own understanding has a tendency to mess things up if it's not in line with God's understanding. It always will. And that's why it's, it's always important to understand the kind of faith that, that God is looking for is not what so many people think. A lot of people think the kind of faith that God is looking for is this kind of yippy-skippy optimism. This, uh, he's looking for this wild leap into the dark, you know, trusting God to take care of all of it. But the Bible actually defines the kind of faith that God wants. It's found in Hebrews 11.6. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Okay, but what does that faith look like? Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. My faith must believe two things. My faith must, first off, believe that God exists. There is a God, and I'm not him. And secondly, I must believe that he earnestly rewards those who seek him, those who do his will, those who follow him, those who acknowledge him, and follow his paths. And that's what, the, that's what Joseph showed us in the book of Genesis. Remember Joseph? Man, he kept doing the right thing and kept getting the wrong results, kept being persecuted for, for doing the right thing, arrested, thrown in prison, yada, yada, yada. All that. I mean, but Joseph didn't, he didn't falter. He kept on doing it. And God, God had a plan for Joseph and for Joseph's offspring. He trusted God to, to reward his diligence in seeking him. The second thing we need to do is we need to make up our mind. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Because who you say Jesus is will determine how you respond to the Jesus that you get. A couple of questions, a couple of tough, tough questions you could ask yourself here. The first one, is Jesus my God? Is Jesus my God? A lot of people like to slap the fish on the back of their truck or wear a cross around their neck or, or, or you know, take out an ad if they're a business person in the Christian yellow pages or something like that. But is Jesus your God? Remember, Mark, the book of Mark, what's his purpose? He's telling us that Jesus is God, and he wants us to believe that. The story of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter, who am I? You are the Messiah. The Roman centurion, surely this man was the Son of God. The resurrection proves it. And that's all Mark is trying to get across here. And what the scripture, what the gospel calls us to believe is to acknowledge him as God. But it isn't just mere lip service. It isn't just a, a nod to God. It isn't just putting something on our, on our truck or, or just you know, taking out an, an advertisement. Here's a second tough question, and it's so true in our modern culture. And this is true, I believe, on both sides of the political spectrum here. Do I have a Jesus who aligns with my worldview and morality, or do I have a moral standard and worldview that aligns with Jesus? In the book of Proverbs, 
in chapters 14, uh, verse 12, and chapter 16, verse 25, God repeats himself twice within two chapters in a book. And it says there, there is a way that seems right to a man, the end of which leads to death. If God says something once, it's important. If God thinks you've got to say something twice within two chapters, I need to pay attention to this. There's a way that seems right to a man that in the end leads to death. And there's a lot of folks who claim to follow Jesus, and they have a moral standard, though, that doesn't come from the Bible because they're doing what they think is right, including when they'll, they'll justify it sometimes. Well, well, those people aren't godly. They're doing this. They're supporting that position. That, that. But yet they're not acting like Jesus as they attack the other people. What did Jesus say to do to your enemies? Attack them? No. He said, love them. He said, love them. And as we continue through this final week in Jesus' life, I want you to pay attention, folks, to the way that Jesus loves the people. He never loses his love for the people. Even though they nail him to a cross, even though they kill him, he never loses that. And so the next time you get all upset about something politically that's going on, remember Jesus' example. How, you know, remember we used to have those little bands on a wrist, WWJD. What would Jesus do? Maybe you need to pull that out or, or think about that again. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And what are the two, the two great commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Oh, I'll tell you a story Jesus said. And so he told a story about a Samaritan. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews. And that's the example he used as someone that was a good neighbor. And so he's basically, whose neighbor, whose neighbor are you? But it's amazing how powerful our behavior and our worldview, we use it to shape our God instead of being humble and say, you know, Lord, I need you to shape my worldview. I need you to give me the grace to love that person that I don't agree with. I need you to give me the grace to, to not be divisive, to not participate in the division. Here's the third thing we need to do. We need to trust the process. This life is just the beginning. The disciples, man, I, I love these guys. You know, they hung with Jesus, you know, for three years. Some of them, like, like, like James and John, they were his cousins. I mean, they knew Jesus all, all their lives. They hung with Jesus for three years, but they still didn't always get it. They ran when he got arrested, but they, they did come back, and they got together. They ended up sticking together, and they, they didn't understand a lot of stuff, and, and they got it wrong, and you name it, they, they, they missed it. But they kept going. They kept going. They realized he's God, and I'm not. And at the end of the day, even though they didn't understand it, Though at times they didn't like it, Peter didn't like Jesus laying down his life. Even in there when Jesus was arrested, arrested in the garden, what does Peter do? He pulls out a sword, which was illegal for him to have to begin with. He was disobeying the law. And he cuts off Malchus's ear, the high priest's servant's ear. And Jesus says, put away the sword. That's not the way I'm doing it, Peter. They understood that this life is just the beginning. It's a process. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Talking about the resurrection, Paul says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Folks, we like things, and we like it now, don't we? You know, we're, we're an instant, instant, uh, instant society. Even my car wash is called quick quack, you know, quick quack. I want to get in and get that car washed, and, and I'm glad I don't have to spend half an hour detailing the car, like but I want it quick. And so, and so do you. A delayed promise is not a broken promise. But all of us, 
All of us, I don't care whether you're 8 or 88, all of us tend to be like little kids. All we can see is the now. I'm telling you the truth here. If you give a little kid a choice, here's a shiny bicycle. You can have it right now. Or if you wait till you're 18, you can have the trustee to this 3,000 square foot house. What's the kid going to do? They're going to take the shiny bicycle every single, every single time. And so would you if you were a kid. And we're just like, the, like those kids. We're not a lot different. So I'm not trying to get down on kids. I'm not trying to get down on us. It's just, it's just how we are because we cannot ex- understand what we haven't experienced. And that's where trust, that's where faith comes in, that he will reward. In Revelation chapter 6, we're told of something and it takes place in heaven. One of the seals is, is, is opened and, and there are those who are in heaven, we're told, who have died for their faith. They have died. They've experienced being martyred for their faith here on earth. And they ask God, they say, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of earth and avenge our blood? They want justice. And then each one of them, we're told, was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer. Anybody here love waiting? I don't like being told to wait. These martyrs in heaven are told, trust the process, wait a little longer. This life on earth, men and women, is only the beginning. Trust the process. I want to close by looking at an Old Testament passage in Habakkuk chapter 3. I love Habakkuk's attitude here, and I want you to go back and read this later. The Assyrians are coming. The Assyrians are coming, and and, and they're going to destroy, they're going to destroy Jerusalem. Everything will be gone. The people will be exiled. And in their lifetime, they're never going to see anything like it was before. How many times do we say that, boy, I just want to go back like it was. I want the good old days. God told the Jews, he told the Israelites, you're not going to see it. It's, It's not going to be that way. Not in your lifetime. You'll never experience what you've experienced up to this point. And men and women, I I believe that we need to keep this in mind. We need to remember that. We need to trust the long haul, the long haul here. I love what Habakkuk says here. He says, man, I trembled. And in verse 17, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and there are no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. And God's told him it's not going to change. But yet Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord, my Savior. Remember that on Election Day, those of you that are citizens of the United States. No matter what the outcome is, no matter which side of the aisle you may vote or you may want, no matter what you read in the newspaper, rejoice in the Lord, your Savior. Disenchantment with Jesus, it's going to happen. He calls us to a faith that says, trust me, trust me, trust me. And for those who do, there will never be someone that says, boy, that was a big mistake. But there'll be a bazillion, and that's that's an actual number. There'll be a bazillion. God knows how many that is. There'll be a bazillion who said, boy, that took longer than I expected, but man, was it worth it. What a story. 
for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mole and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.